Well, Acts 20, 18 through 31. Actually, 17 through 31, my fault. Read from here. Now, from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus, and he called the elders of the church to come to him. When they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of grace of God. And now behold... I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And we're going to pay, we're going to pay special attention to the next uh, three verses, four verses. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. We'll stop there. Let's pray. Holy God, as we sing earlier, Lord, you are a most holy God. Holy is Lord God Almighty. God, you say in your word, in your holy word, that as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return without watering the earth, making it bud and flourish so that it produces seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is your word that comes forth from your mouth. It will not return to you empty, but will accomplish all that you desire and achieve the purpose for which you sent it. Lord, Lord, your word is as sure as the rain that produces a crop. So we ask this morning that you would be faithful to it, Lord, that you would accomplish what you would want to des- want this morning, Lord, and achieve the purpose for which you have sent this word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, we are wrapping up our first passage involving this church, this church at Ephesus. Ephesus is this place in ancient world, uh, the Greco-Roman world, that basically was the magic, and we love Artemis capital of the world, um, very much into magical things. And next week, we're going to turn our attention to Paul's letter to the same church in Ephesus. And spend a few weeks talking specifically about the church. We've been talking about the unique role of a pastor teacher in the church. What he's supposed to do. And why should you care about that. 
And this week, we have a slight modification, which is already up there. We're calling it the church and its pastors, which I'm, I managed to graffiti up there um, through the magic of Windows, <laughs> Windows Paint. That's right. I use the, if you're familiar with computers, I use the oldest program possible to put that up there. Uh, the church and its pastors. Uh, we're going to look at the role. Uh, we have been looking at a unique role that the lead pastor plays, but now we're going to shift a little bit and look at the role that the pastor, teacher, and the team of elders play together in terms of leading the church and leading this church here in Ephesus. And I believe that what we're going to look at today has a greater immediate impact on our church than anything we've looked at so far. Okay? I know that's, that's saying a lot. Maybe it's saying a little, depending on what you thought of the sermon so far. But I want to get into this here. Um, so let's start. Three important terms we get right away before we go any further in talking about this passage. Three, three terms you may or may not have heard of before. Uh, the first term is in verse 17. It's called elders. All right? Elders, in the Greek, it's presby- presbyteroi. Uh, it's the word from which we get uh, Presbyterian. If you're familiar with Presbyterian, it's a domination of Christianity. Uh, so that's our first one. Our second one is uh, overseers in verse 28. Episcopoi is the Greek word here. Uh, Episcopoi, which is the word from which we derive Episcopalian. That's right. So uh, all you good Episcopalians and Anglicans out there, literally, it means overlookers. It's kind of got the image of someone looking over his people, kind of like on the mountainside, like Moses looking on his people, or Jesus looking over Jerusalem and weeping for them. That overlooking sense, that's caring sense, that's what it means. So even though I grew up Episcopalian, I miss taking uh, the communion there and getting the flu from the chalice. Uh, it does not mean, this word does not carry that sense of bishop. You Episcopalians know what I'm talking about with the flu. You know, they always wiped off the chalice thinking that, oh, that'll sanitize the cup. And then I would proceed to get a cold that week. Um, it does not carry that Episcopalian sense of bishop when we talk about overseers, although it's often translated that way. A third term is, actually shows up as a verb. It's, it's, the, it's a verb for pastors in verse 28. Uh, it's poimenos. We get it as a verb here and where you see to care for, to care for the church there in verse 28. Um, so, as we see this passage, as we look at this passage, you will see that all three sort of overlap. All right? They're not distinct offices. Really, there are three functions within the same office, the same role, if you will. Does that make sense? And so, that's what we have here going on in these verses. They're all referring to kind of this, what we'll often call in the church, elders. Um, an elder, here, here are the three kind of emphases. An elder is kind of the more mature part of it. The mature and wisdom, maturity and wisdom necessary to lead, to make decisions, to help counsel other people, right? With godly advice. The overseer's part's more that supervisory role, kind of a, a watching over, um, considering how they might help people. And the pastor's is more that directing role, you know, prodding at times, but also caring for people as well. Uh, the only distinction made within this office of elders, overseers, pastors, one office, the only distinction made is the one or the few who regularly preach and teach. Paul says to Timothy that we are to consider uh, those people worthy of double honor. 
It says in 1 Timothy 5.17, meaning basically those who regularly preach and teach, the church would support that person monetarily, which is why you see that happening with pastors. So hopefully that's a quick overview of the terms, understanding, and framework of what we're going to be dealing with this morning. Um, but before I go any further, uh, in honor of Heroes Week last Monday, that's right, I'm keeping up with my Caymanian holidays and culture. Uh, even though I worked for the church that day, I just want to tell you that. I labored that day. Um, I am no hero. Uh, but in honor of Heroes Day, before I go any further, I want to talk a little military history. All right? So, um, and specifically, a lot of great battles, but I want to talk about the Battle of Normandy. All right? So who, who enjoys military history? You, you enjoy that sort of thing? Okay, there's a few of you. There's, I didn't. I don't want to be gender specific. There was no woman who raised her hand, though. I know. So later on, if you call me sexist, other was. Oh, Iris, thank you. Thank you, Iris. I appreciate that. <laughs> All right, now I don't have an excuse to be. All right. Anyway, um, now in the States, Normandy um, is really more associated uh, with, with fame because of its beach and in, in World War II. But there's a battle in Normandy that preceded that long ago. Um, it didn't occur, actually, in Normandy. Normandy is a region in northern France that, towards the end of the first millennium AD, experienced extensive Viking resettlement. All right? I don't think there was as much looting and, and pillaging as we think with Vikings at that point. It was fairly peaceful. But after some commingling together, and hopefully you adults know what I mean by commingling, uh, a number of them settle in England and even managed to gain some significant influence in that government. And many years later, uh, after King Edward dies, he leaves no clear successor to the throne, so there's a mad dash for it, for the throne, followed by some political confusion, instability, uh, an overthrow, until a man named Harold finally sort of established himself as king. All right? Um, the Normans take advantage of this political instability. They, they've grown in influence over the government, uh, or in the government, and they take advantage of this political instability. Uh, the Duke of Normandy, William, sort of starts preparing for an uprising, uh, which is a huge deal because they're a, a, a very small minority in England. And in 1066, the new king, Harold, has to spend the summer on the south coast of England with a large army preparing and waiting for William to invade. On the 8th of September, he has to retreat. He has to dismiss his army. Why, you ask? Were they afraid? Were, were not enough? Uh, you know, their weapons were inferior? No, they ran out of food. They ran out of food. Harold was not prepared. He failed to protect his people in battle caused him to flee too soon and for his army to go home. He didn't bring enough food. Everybody knows when uh, protecting your people and uh, your nation and, and battle requires a few things. One, requires men and in some cases very aggressive women. Uh, and it requires weapons and it requires an adequate amount of food, even if that food is British food. All right? Uh, you still need it. All right? Yes. It's my British shot there. Come on. It's bad. You know it. Uh, he, then he hears of Norwegians. All right? So that goes past by a few months until he hears of a separate army, Norwegians, coming from outside the country invading the north. When he hears of it, without enough food and supplies to muster his regular troops, he actually has to 
get troops along the way. He musters troops to come with him along the way who can provide their own food and, and supplies and whatnot. Uh, to me, it reminds me of what um, the Canadians would have to do if they, someone ever invaded their land. Uh, you know, they just have to get people on the way because they don't have an army. They just have a few Mounties. And they'd be like, come on, guys, come along. Help us. Sorry, that's <laughs> England and Canada. That's two. All right. Um, England does defeat the Norwegians, but at a great cost. And Harold's army is left uh, battered, weakened, and unable to continue if there's another assault. Seemingly. So he sustains these significant losses, weary from battle, and then they get the attack from within the country, from the Normans. From the Normans living inside England, led by William, Duke of Normandy. William comes out to meet the British in Hastings. And so we get the Battle of Hastings, which would end up concluding this war very swiftly. Throughout the day, the Norman knights continually throw themselves against the Anglo-Saxon phalanx, the center held steady for a while with that British strength. Gotta give you a compliment. But by nightfall, Harold was dead, and the Anglo Saxon resistance collapsed. William's victory at the Battle of Hastings effectively ended the conquest. It's regarded as a very important war. It's a watershed period in British history, actually. It actually kind of begins the start of what historians call conventional English history. A lot of things change. For instance, uh, the English language is transformed during this time. It's significantly influenced uh, by the French or by French influence. Uh, develops into, goes from Old English and develops into starkly different Middle English, uh, which formed the basis for the modern language today. And believe me, this is a massive blessing uh, to all the world. Uh, because if you think you have a hard time understanding British terminology today, those you aren't British, uh, words like barmy for crazy, or nosh for food, or as I learned recently from a British person, a snog, which means to kiss a member of the opposite gender. Only the British in their great romantic sense can call a kiss a snog. And that's great, isn't it? It's just like so nice and romantic. But if you think that's hard to understand, you don't understand, what are you talking about? Try Old English. I mean, it is, if you ever read the Canterbury Tales or Beowulf, all right, you know what I'm talking about. It is, it is just, I mean, it takes you 30 minutes to read two lines. It's so difficult. Uh, we avoided it in English literature, like the bubonic plague when I was a major, that was my major in college. The point is this, though, a lot of changes, significant war, but it all took, it all happened. It all failed for the English because Harold took too much of the administrative burden upon himself. He thought he overestimated himself. He thought he could take care of everything, including all the food, supplies. He didn't delegate. He overestimated himself, which led to a failure of protecting the people's land and led to their downfall. He tried to pre prepare and protect his people, but failed to look inward to prepare and protect himself from himself, right? Pride goes before the fall. Oftentimes it's ourselves cause the worst damage, and we can't even protect the people we love. That happened with Harold. The reason I bring up this story is it has a lot to do with our sermon this morning. Uh, if you remember nothing else about this morning, uh, anything else about the sermon, remember this, this is kind of the sermon in a nutshell. An elder must put on his own armor before trying to protect the fort. An elder in the church must put on his own armor 
for trying to protect the fort, the church, God's people. If he's going to help save other people, he's got to first protect himself so he can do the saving. I also thought about calling this main point, this in a nutshell, uh, <laughs> an elder must follow the emergency oxygen mask principle. All right, I thought about this as well. So I'm giving you the second one if this helps you better. Uh, All of you, I'm looking out here, almost all of you have been on a plane because you're here and most of you are expatriates unless you swam or took a balsa raft. So all of you know what it's like to get on a plane and and, and you get that that spiel before you uh, take off where uh, part of the spiel is the flight attendants say, if you experience an unexpected loss of cabin pressure or oxygen, the oxygen mass above will fall. And you will place that, insert the mask on yourself first, but if you have a child... Insert the mask on yourself first, then place the mask on your child next to you. Something of that nature, right? I'm sure I, that was not a good impression. But even still, all right, you get the point. The, the obvious application of this is that you can't help your child if you yourself are unconscious for lack of oxygen, right? It's similar, the role of an elder in, in a church and protecting the church. If you want to help people, if you want to guard the fort and guard your people, You've got to look at your own life first and take care of your own spiritual life before you go look to help others. And that's what Paul is saying here, I think, to these elders in verses 28 through 31 of chapter 20. He's saying, look and protect your own heart so you can protect the church. You can protect the hearts of those in the church. Because, just as King Harold experienced, malice can come from outside and from within. So you have to doubly be on your guard. Three things this morning I want to talk about related to this main point. Uh, one, the elder protecting the sheep and the malicious wolf. What's the connection between those? Two, I want to talk about why should we be so afraid of the big bad wolf? Three, how does a church begin to protect both its walls and its interior? from wolves, from attack. So we're going to start with the first. The elder protecting sheep and the wolf. What's the connection here? I just want to say it's not probably what you think it is. I think that what we think normally, right, is, well, the elder protects people from the wolves. I think it's a little bit different here, what Paul is saying. I believe Paul is saying that, but he's also making a connection between what... Why, I think it's why Paul finds it so important to command the elders. And he commands them. Pay attention to yourselves. Right? He says that in verse 28. And then again in verse 31. Be alert. Why is it Paul so emphatic about pay attention to yourselves and be alert? Especially to what I've been telling you with tears for all these many years. Namely, I think it's a connection that the elder must protect his heart against himself. So that he does not become the wolf. Because in one sense, an elder, a leader in the church, is most likely, in the most likely position to become the wolf. Because he also carries the shepherd's crook. Right? He's also been given, uh, has had authority vested in him, especially to, to preach and to teach and to guide people. So he has a sense of authority that the church has given, that God has given to him. So he's the most likely to become power hungry and become the wolf. Once I, I once heard a pastor say, I think very wisely, 
My people's greatest need is my own personal holiness. Now that might sound kind of self-centered, like, boy, even when the pastor, you know, the pastor is up front and he's, you know, is he still talking about himself and he's talking about my needs? Um, but it's not. Because we all know, we talked about this before, if the pastors and leaders of the church don't take care of their own hearts, it's going to come out eventually and destroy the church. Little by little. Another pastor named A.W. Tozier wrote a great book you may have heard of called The Pursuit of God. Said this, Do you know who gives me the most trouble? Do you know who I pray for the most in my pastoral work? Just myself. He said. That's why it's so important to have a team, a plurality, we call it, of elders who love one another and serve together as a team so that when one goes astray, the others are there to encourage him, to care for him, even, even say a hard word and say, get back here, man. We need you. So important for that reason. Because an elder can become a wolf without protecting his own heart. But why is a wolf so bad? Why should we be afraid of the big bad wolf? Look with me in verses 29 and 30. Verse 29 says, I know that after my departure, Paul speaking here, I know after my departure, fierce, wool, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own cells will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Pretty harsh, right? I mean, this all-consuming wolf, seriously? Twisted things from among yourselves, even among the elders? Aren't, is this right? I mean, about teaching? And beliefs aren't people just maybe not trying to twist the truth that people come after them. Maybe they're just confused, you know, right? Maybe they just don't understand. They haven't been in the church long enough to get it. Maybe there's just differences in how people understand or interpret the Bible. But when faithful teaching from God's Word goes astray, when it goes off into a different direction, doesn't line up with God's Word, it's not usually because of confusion, misunderstanding, or a lack of education, but because people are selfish and want more power. That's usually why teaching goes astray. And that includes from the pastor. 1 Timothy 6, 3-5. through 5, um, Paul writes a young disciple of his, who's gonna, who is a pastor named Timothy, and he says it this way. If anyone teaches a different doctrine a different belief system, in other words, and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy, quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. 1 Timothy 6, 3-5. There's that idea that being a Christian and being a leader specifically, godliness is a means of gain. Puff oneself up, have a sense of power, and a gain for oneself. Um, that's usually why false teaching goes astray. Why should we be afraid? I think because of what's described in these verses. Right? Quarrels. Envy. Dissension. Slander. You know, give, giving someone else a stink eye because you're suspicious of them, right? It starts to happen at a church. Constant friction. 
until the fort that we started out with starts to look like, you know, the, the town tavern. Or, or worse, it looks like your workplace, right? Or actually, even worse, it starts to look like a second grade classroom. Until there's nothing that distinguishes the church from the rest of the world. You know? Otherwise, we're just like a, rot- a rotary club getting together, do some nice things, have some good principles. No, I'm not down in the Rotary Club. It's great. But we're called to be the church, the light that stands out in a dark place. It doesn't happen when these things come about. How does it all start? It all starts from false teaching about false beliefs. That's where it starts. That's why Paul says to Timothy, again, a young pastor, Timothy, who Paul discipled. And actually, Timothy started pastoring this same church we're talking about today. He would take over Paul's pastor in the Ephesian church. Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.16, Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them. Because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. You see the connection here? I love God's word. I love how different parts of it fit together. Timothy, who's going to go in now and pastor this Ephesian church, Here's the same thing that Paul says in Acts 20. Save both yourself, because by saving yourself, by watching your beliefs, you help protect those you love, the church. I love that connection there. That's what's really cool about God's Word. Um, Put on your own armor, Timothy, before going to protect the fort. Look at your own belief system. If you remember last week, We talked about what you believe in life over time will determine what you value, what you tend to prioritize. And what you prioritize and value will eventually determine how you behave, will determine what you say and what you do with your life. As it shows up here in this handy uh, handy diagram I showed last week. It'll go up in a second. Paul knew if Timothy... And these elders in Acts 20 protected and reinforced their beliefs, godly beliefs. And they protected and reinforced those in the church as well. They wouldn't value the kind of power and selfishness that determines behavior of dissension, stink eyes, and told you so's. Right? If they could just protect what the church sticks to, what it believes in, above all else. I was thinking about this, and, and how do I convey false belief? It's just a vague term, right? People have all kinds of different opinions about what they are. I want to give you at least one example of a false belief that exists in church today. In churches today. I want to start with a question. Uh, just kind of get you to interact with me a little bit on this. Uh, does God want to bless you? From what you know about God, does God want to bless you? Yes. All right. You might be hesitating if you think I'm throwing a trick question. I'm not. What are some examples, though, of blessings from God? Throw some out. What's that? The air we breathe. The air we breathe. Worshipfully. Of course, the worship person says that after the song up there. This is the air I breathe. What, what, what else? What's that? Good health. That's great. Okay, someone just signaled this. I don't understand. What? Uh, I'm a pastor. I don't. 
Now, yes, money. Uh, I can bless you financially. What else? Love of friends and family. All right, that's good. That's a good sampling. All right? Called to love one another, especially our family, uh, those in our own household, and people God puts in our life. But I, what I noticed, we didn't say, and, and I, this is natural. It didn't come to my mind first either. Uh, people left suffering out and discipline. What? <laughs> well, you know, that is the case. A pastor I love, and a guy named Charles Spurgeon, he used to preach a long time ago in Great Britain, uh, said this, that the greatest blessing to a man is his health. As Wanda said earlier, the greatest blessing to a man is his health. Except, of course, sickness. <laughs> in the same sentence. See, Spurgeon knew that God's great remodeling project here on earth is to take people, people he loves, and make them look more and more like Jesus. Make them look more and more like Jesus. And Jesus, the thing he did better than anything else, was trust and depend on his heavenly Father. So anything that God does to help us trust and depend on him more is a gift. So we might be more like him. It's not always fun. It's not always easy. But if you've been through it, and you come out on the other side, you know what I'm talking about, what a blessing it is. The author of Hebrews says that God disciplines those he loves because he's treating them as sons or as daughters. And as a result, we should really beware if you are not suffering or enduring discipline at some point in your life. But the largest church in the United States rejects this. Rejects this teaching entirely. It doesn't talk about sin as a reality or suffering as a possible blessing. They talk about how God only wants to bless you with the good stuff. The health, the wealth, and, um, you know, LCD TVs. I'll, I'll give you a hint. I don't want to give away the name of this church, but it's in a church, or sorry, it's in a state that rhymes with hexes. And in a city, oh, this is a little hard though, in a city whose name is identical to the last name of, of a pop singer who famously sang, and I, E-I, E-I, will always love you. Okay? Her last name. Alright, that's the city. Alright, so you put those two together and you can do some research. But this false belief is due to, <laughs> this false belief is due to selfishness. Ultimately, Right? God wants to bless in the way we like to receive blessing. Right? It's comfort. It's my comfort. My comfort. And of course, Americans, we really like this. And so, we've gravitated towards this. But, this false belief is so damaging. It leads to valuing comfort above all else which leads to a certain kind of behavior of what we say and do. Where people uh, are always telling other people that God wants to he always heal them, always bless them financially. And also it leads to this people becoming embittered with God when the circumstances of their life go sour. Well, God, you must not have enough faith because God wants to bless you. Why aren't you being blessed? It's destructive. Wolves are scary because they attack the root of our Christian lives. 
our beliefs, which rots the whole tree from within. But how then does a church, how, what do we do about this? How does a church begin to protect its walls and protect itself from, from within? Well, number one, with individual elders who guard their own hearts and lives. But how do we guard our hearts and lives? How do we protect our hearts so that we can protect others? How does anyone do this? Especially elders. One, with good doctrine and beliefs. Good doctrine and beliefs. And that happens... I want to make a recommendation of a book at this point. Uh, two books, Basic Christianity by John Stott. If you don't know what you believe or you're, you're wondering what the Bible says, kind of in more of a nutshell, condensed fashion, uh, Basic Christianity by John Stott. It's a great book. And uh, Know What You Believe by Paul Little. Uh, Neither are back in the table. I hope someday we have them. But um, great books. Uh, but also you can do it by reading God's Word. Absolutely. If you want to grab, there's a, a few copies of the Gospel of John back there. Um, if you want to just grab it for free, take it. Someone will get mad at me for, for saying that, but I'm, I'm saying take it. Go ahead. Good doctrine, right beliefs. Number two, self-examination, confession, and receiving forgiveness. This is, in other words, an elder who cares about the gospel and meditates on the gospel every day of his life. Enough to look at his own heart and say, God, how have I sinned against you? And then confesses that to the Lord. And then receives forgiveness. That's why Jesus died for us. And it should be every, every part of our, every day of our life that we should be meditating on that. That's how he protects his own heart. Number three, I'm just giving you four things. Three, you protect your heart by having a friend who can ask a hard question. Or can speak a hard truth into your life. Proverbs 27.6 says that uh, faithful are the wounds of a friend... But a, flatter, a flatterer brings ruin, right? It is good to have a friend who will say something we need to hear, even if it's hard. That's how we can protect our hearts as well. Uh, and fourthly, I've mentioned it already, to receive suffering, to discipline and suffering as a necessary gift. To have the right perspective on it. When I go through hard times, God, I know everything's a gift from you to make you, to make me look more like your son. Everything's a gift to make me look more like your son, more and more. That's how an elder can protect his heart and life. The other way we protect our church is with elders who understand teamwork. All right? Uh, this idea of elders, uh, or having a team of elders, a plurality of elders, is countercultural to an organizational structure. What do I mean by that? That it goes against what we think of as a successful organization in the world. When it comes to management that's efficient and results-oriented, let's look at how an elder stacks up. All right? Look at uh, 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. It's up on the screen if you don't have a Bible. How does an elder fit into the efficiency results-oriented model? Well, Paul says this about elders. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Let's just stop right there. Last few. Uh, not violent, but gentle. 
What, what, would a, what would a CEO often say to that? Not all CEOs, but some. Well, maybe be nice sometimes, but uh, be passive-aggressive if you need to, to get what you want, right? Not quarrelsome. Well, maybe not hourly quarrelsome, but if you need to persuade people to buy our product, you do it, right? Uh, not a lover of money. And how does that work in the business model? Usually not well. Uh, you know, it just doesn't happen. I mean, even those things, you can go on to that list. So on the one hand, the church is not to be run in a manner that the CEO of a Fortune 500 company might run his business. Right? We're called to be different. Having said this, I want to say a word about this. Managers, CEO types can make excellent elders. Not because the management of their business spills over into their church life, but the opposite. Because the management of their personal life, including how they love their families, how they help run the church, spills over into their business life. I want to give you one example uh, of this, of a person like this, I think, in our church. There's a man in our church who travels a good bit for his job. If his job requires that he works at a location on Friday, on like the end of a week on Friday, but also be there for the following Monday, he usually spends his own dime to come home on the weekends. Because he says, you know, that's two more dinners. It's two more lunches. And at least one more breakfast. Or two, one or two more breakfasts. That's a guy who starts with managing his own life well. Right? And it spills over in the life of the church. I love that. An elder team understands authority that is biblical. Uh, sorry, an elder team understands authority that is biblical requires blood. Requires blood. What I mean by that is authority, as it should be, is a frightening word, right? Because people in your life, in my life, we've abused it so often. But biblical authority is authority given to lay it down on another's behalf. To lay it down to benefit others. To follow the example of Christ, who it says in this passage of verse 28, obtain the church with his own blood. Sacrifice himself for the benefit of the church. That's what biblical authority is. And that's what we're called to do as pastors. Hopefully you understand in a little better what, what, what elders and pastors are called to do. Before we end, I want to talk about two things for yourself. Um, uh, what about Sunrise Community Church? I want to ask two questions one that involves sort of the church as a whole and one that is just for you personally. One, with regard to our church. And this is a serious question. A grave question. Do you feel protected by this church? Do you feel protected by this church? Do you feel like people guide you, instruct you in a way that strengthens you to live in a dark and fallen world? Do you have confidence that the church knows who you are and shelters your relationship with Christ at all costs? Has the church been honest, as honest and forthright with you as you'd like? Does it ooze integrity in such a way that gives you a certain confidence and even pride about the church? I, I believe, so this is a pastor and, and it's not fun for me to talk about these things, but I believe this is an area we need to greatly improve on in our church. Um, I've met 
I met with a number of you guys here today in this last few weeks. And without me bringing it up, uh, some of you uh, had issues with this very question. And um, I, if I had to summarize a response, it'd be somewhere to, to this question, it'd be somewhere between no and I don't think so. Uh, I've got some questions. I really believe as a church, we need to restore uh, confidence. We need to restore your confidence about the way we do leadership in our church. And we're a young church. We're just trying to figure it out. So I have asked, and the leadership team has resoundingly encouraged me to initiate a process of training and uh, selecting elders to help lead our church in this next decade. So that's what we'll be doing in the next, uh, starting in the next couple weeks. And after that, we'll, we'll be working on a process of having deacons and deaconesses as well. But talking with a number, I'll be talking with a number of folks. I want to be honest and let you guys know what we're doing. I'm talking with a number of folks outside our leadership team and obviously inside our team as well about that. Uh, we'll be meet, meeting weekly through March and we'll learn about what it means to be an elder and what it takes. Uh, we'll be, I'll be sending one-on-one time with people individually and we'll do things as a team. Some people will stick with it, some won't, but that's the way it should be because that's kind of, I think, the Holy Spirit's way of revealing to people if they're called and qualified to this and ready to take the plunge. At the end of that time, I'll present uh, these men before the church and recommend them as elders. It might be two people, it might be six. I have no idea. And we'll see what God comes up with. But um, if you have any questions about this process, I welcome any questions or concerns you might have. Gives you a good chance to try out my email, ryan at sunrise.ky. So I haven't got an email on that address yet. So try it out. Um, I do also want to make one point here, one last comment. I want to honor our current leadership team. I want to take a moment to do this. I am extremely grateful uh, how they have sacrificed and labored for our church in ways that I've had a little bit of a window into behind the scenes, but I still don't even understand the magnitude of it. They have sacrificed and labored, sacrificed their reputation in cases for this church. And I want to honor that. I want to honor that. I'm grateful for the friendship and support they've given me uh, during this process when they pursued me as being their pastor. And here's the really cool thing I want to share about this current leadership team. They wholeheartedly supported my condition for a team of elders, even though they knew that some of them might not serve on that team, and while they committed to support me and my family, even financially and otherwise. And that takes a lot of humility, right, to say, I might end up being on this team. I don't know. But we're going to support you, and we want you to be our pastor. I mean, Wow, that's, that was really touching to me. And I want to honor our leadership team for that. So I didn't want to take a moment, and I just want to give a little applause for this leadership team that's worked behind the scenes um, just to help this church in the last few years. Can you do that with me right now? I thank you for that. And otherwise... I also want to ask you this last question. With regard to you personally, what fort are you protecting? Because implicit, and, and what we read in 1 Timothy 3, is this, we are called to aspire. So this is called to aspire to be an elder as a noble calling. And there are plenty of noble callings in Scripture. The Proverbs 31 woman. Uh, uh, the husband, a wife, a mother, a father, a deacon, a deaconess, a contributing member of a church, or even just the call to one day hear from Jesus, well done, good and faithful servant. 
And these responsibilities include a call to protect a fort full of other people. But protecting a fort doesn't just happen overnight. If you want to be part of something bigger than yourself, part of a bigger calling, you need to build those habits of self-sacrificial, loving leadership now. So I want you to consider today, as we leave, do I need to go from here and find a fort to protect? Do I need to go from here and find a fort to protect? Or am I a person who has a lot of forts, who has a stake in a lot of people's lives, but I haven't really done a good job of putting on my own armor, nourishing my own spiritual life? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would help us with that challenge this morning. That you would help us ask that question of ourselves, am I protecting a fort? Am I caring enough about other people to protect and talk to them about what they believe? Even just asking them questions about what's going on in their lives? Lord, if so, I pray you would spur us on to find a fort to protect. And Jesus, if we have forts to protect, but we have to honestly confess before you that we have not done a good job of protecting our own heart, our own selves. Lord, convict us of the need to protect our own heart in order to help others and love them well. Help us get serious about reading your word, about just simply examining our own heart and confessing sin and receiving your forgiveness, about getting a friend into our life who might tell us a hard truth or in gaining a new perspective on even suffering and discipline in our lives, that everything from you is a gift. We celebrate you and your grace this morning. Thank you for loving us enough to be our chief shepherd and for protecting us, your fort, this church. In Jesus' name, amen.